Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. While it's often misunderstood by the general public, the BDSM subculture and similar ones like it should be safe places for consenting adults to carry out their sexual desires with other people who share the same interests. Unfortunately, though, from time to time, bad actors can abuse that trust and take advantage of someone who has given themselves over to that person completely. That's exactly what happened to Elaine O'Hara, a troubled young woman who by all accounts just wanted to be loved and who wanted to express that love in the form of a master-slave relationship, only for her to ultimately feel the wrath of a cold-blooded sadist who expected nothing more than her pain and eventual death. This is Monsters. Elaine O'Hara was born on March 17, 1976 in Dublin, Ireland to parents Frank and Eileen, and it was there she had a difficult childhood. She was often bullied while studying at St. Joseph of Clooney Secondary School on account of her dyslexia and, at least partially because of that, she ended up falling into a pit of depression and abuse of her own body at a young age. Things were so bad that by the time her mid-teens came around, Elaine had cut a critical section of her arm with a very sharp object while locked inside her family bathroom. Thankfully, though, on that occasion, her mother was able to get to her before she bled out, and as a result, she'd be admitted to a psychiatric facility where she was finally given the help she needed. It was there that, upon being first treated by Professor Anthony Clare and receiving a borderline personality disorder diagnosis in August of 1992, Elaine began to fully understand and accept the reasons for her mental health problems, with those not only being the fact that she was a frequent target of bullies on account of her learning difficulty, but also that she had been forced to deal with death at a young age when a friend of hers was killed in a car accident. On top of that, there were other physical health problems she had to contend with on a daily basis as well. Health problems such as asthma, diabetes, and polycystic ovary syndrome, with the latter two having only been recently diagnosed by then. With answers to some of her difficulties in life and accepting the treatment proposed by her doctors, Elaine was able to start moving forward with a new chapter. That chapter involved her finishing school and going to college where she began studying childcare, an industry she hoped to find employment in afterwards. 
Unfortunately, for as good as things appeared to be going for her, there were still some concerns Elaine's parents had about the effects the medication she was being given was having on their daughter. As her father Frank would later put it, quote, Her treatment mainly involved a lot of medication as far as I could see. We used to take her out on a Saturday and she'd fall asleep in the cafe. She was so heavily medicated. She never experienced those years that other kids do. Still, it was better she be in that state than the state she'd been in before as now she no longer appeared to be in any danger to herself. So the O'Hara's allowed things to continue on in such a manner. And that all led to the young woman eventually finishing her studies in 2001 and securing a job as a child care assistant at the same elementary school her mother worked at in Ballybrack. That situation served the dual purpose of not only giving her a foot in the door of her chosen career path, but also allowing her to spend more time with her mother. Unfortunately, though, unbeknownst to either of them, the pair's time together was about to come to a permanent end, as in 2002, Eileen passed away following a short battle with cancer. Obviously, then, that came as a huge blow to Elaine, as her mother had been one of the people she was closest to in the world. And while she did try to keep herself together for the sake of her father, if nothing else, over time, the grief led to her mental health issues starting to get the better of her once more. By 2005, the now 29-year-old woman had returned to administering harm to herself. At that point, it was harder for her father to keep an eye on her as she'd moved out of her family home in Kalini and was living in an apartment in nearby Blackrock. Sure, her dad would still visit her regularly and would even try to support his daughter financially, easing her burdens in the process. But that wasn't enough to stop her from ending up in a coma for 24 hours after one incident led to what was assumed to be a possible attempt to remove herself from the world in 2007. Why had she gone so far that time? Well, it was the point where Professor Anthony Clare, the psychiatrist who'd been treating her for years and had in many ways been her lifeline, also died suddenly, leaving Elaine scrambling to emotionally recover. Despite all that, she would eventually recover, and once she was released from the hospital, she began working part-time at a newsagent's in Blackrock, all while she took night classes in nearby Dunlary, where she was learning to become a monastery teacher, a method of teaching which involves eschewing more traditional methods in exchange for focusing on a child's natural interests and talents instead. Yes, things were finally starting to look up for Elaine again. Even her father was pleased with her progress and with the fact the new, more proactive therapy she had begun had allowed her to reduce her medication dosage. One thing he would not be happy about, however, was the revelation that his daughter had entered into a relationship with a married man from Fox Rock, something he found out in early 2008. And it wasn't just the fact he was married either. No, it was the circumstances of their relationship. As he later recalled her telling him, quote, She said, He ties me up and masturbates over me. We haven't had sex. I was shocked. It might have been unsavory. I suggested she write it down and show it to her psychologist. But it doesn't appear that Elaine ever did tell her new psychologist, Dr. Matt Murphy of St. Edmundsbury Hospital, about that relationship as she was far too happy in it, at least at that point in time. The reason for that was because it allowed her to engage in a sexual fetish she'd long been interested in, and that was BDSM, or bondage, discipline, dominance and submission, and sadomasochism. 
Now, for those not familiar with BDSM, it can often be a misunderstood sexual practice as it involves one person taking a position of dominance over the other in a variety of different ways, whether that be physical, emotional, or financial, just to name a few. But while it can involve somewhat violent acts such as spanking, flogging, or tying people up, it almost always requires the participants involved to give their full consent and discuss what will happen ahead of time so that everything remains as safe and as risk-free as possible. Of course, one of the main ways people in that subculture can initially come into contact with each other is through the internet as, being a haven of all sorts of different niche interests, it provides them with a forum to express their desires within. That was exactly how Elaine first met Graham Dwyer, with the pair first communicating in late 2007 on Alt.com, a fetish-themed adult sex site. Graham Dwyer was a successful architect who, like Elaine, had a passion for all things BDSM. In his case, though, the desires he harbored were far more violent than most of the people within the subculture, something his new partner would soon learn. But it's not surprising she wouldn't have been aware of that at first because no one who knew him was. No, to the outside world, Graham was a fairly normal 35-year-old man originally hailing from Bandon County, Cork, who, after studying architecture at the Dublin Institute of Technology in the early 90s, had gone on to find good work in the field. While doing that, he had also been falling in love with a Donegal-born woman named Emer McShay, with the two later getting married and having a child together. For as much as that may have seemed like a picturesque life, it wasn't enough to fulfill Graham because try as he might to get her interested in it, Emer didn't want to take part in any of her husband's BDSM games in the bedroom. Hell, to her it wasn't just a harmless bit of fun. No, she saw something far darker in his eyes whenever he suggested it. And those fears only increased when at one point during their relationship he confided in her that he had been fantasizing about stabbing a woman during sex. Then, after that, he brought a kitchen knife into the bedroom with him that same evening. Needless to say, their relationship wouldn't last long after that as by 1996 they formally divorced. But Graham wasn't alone for long, as by 1997 he began dating a fellow architecture student named Gemma Healy. It's not clear if Gemma shared the same sexual desires as he did, but obviously they had enough of a connection that they ended up getting married in 2002 and then moved in together at a house in Fox Rock where they had two children of their own. By that point, everything was looking to be headed on an upward trajectory for the young architect again as his career was now beginning to take off, with him starting a new job with A&D Wedgard and Partners Architects around that time. He ended up doing so well there that by June of 2006, he'd been named a director of the company and would be directly involved in a number of major development projects both in Ireland and in Poland, including the Carlo Institute of Technology and the Leopardstown Racecourse and Larry. That said, for as much as things appeared to be great on the surface, underneath that veneer, the situation was actually quite dire for Graham and Gemma. That's because their taste for the finer things in life, such as luxury cars, radio-controlled aircrafts, and sailboats, meant that no matter how much he was earning, they continued to fall further and further into debt. Of course, that was made all the worse by the financial crash of 2007, something that caused Gemma to lose her job and Graham to have to take a huge reduction in pay. 
In fact, over the next few years, his wages would decrease by over 50%, leaving him with only 70,000 euro a year. A huge amount for most, but a pittance for someone used to living the lifestyle he and his wife were living. Still, things weren't all bad for him because, even if his family were in a bad financial situation, he was able to continue engaging in his BDSM desires via websites like Alt.com where he went by username Architect72. How creative. After meeting Elaine O'Hara while she was going by the name Help Me Learn 36-F, the two agreed to meet up in person to begin a sexual relationship. Sure, that wasn't the first time Elaine had met up with someone from Alt.com. Prior to that, she'd had some kind of relationship with a man she met there named Adam. However, that relationship appears to have been pretty tame by comparison to what was about to come, because as far as Graham was concerned, basic bondage and sadomasochism wasn't going to cut it. No, he wanted someone who was willing to be completely submissive to his increasingly unconventional demands. Luckily for him, Elaine was only too happy to engage him in his fantasies and commit to such submissiveness as she enjoyed many of the same things as he did. Or, at least she was willing to explore them. After all, despite her age, she was pretty sexually inexperienced at that point. Something that partially came as a result of her emotional immaturity. Her own stepmother, Sheila Hawkins, would later describe her as having the emotional development of a 15-year-old. That's why, when Graham suggested using things like handcuffs to start off with, she was all in on the idea. Of course, over time though, his suggestions got more and more extreme, with him at one point convincing Elaine to let him cut her with a knife. As Edna Lillis, a friend of hers, would later state when discussing a time the young woman had confided in her about her new boyfriend, quote, She showed me her stomach. They were recent cuts, about three or four inches long, fresh and right across her stomach. She told me she met someone on the internet and he liked to cut her and she was having some sort of relationship with him whereby he cut her. I told her she was playing a dangerous game. As the weeks and months went on, it appears Elaine began to take heed of that advice as she herself grew wary of Graham. Sure, he was giving her the attention she so desperately craved, but when things started getting too heavy even for her, she decided to cut off the relationship later that year. After that, she went back to seeking out men on the internet with one of the men, Robert Cullen Jones, later testifying in court that she had been interested in things like sensory deprivation, verbal humiliation, and most troubling, knife play, suggesting her experiences with Graham had created a longer-term interest in introducing cutting into the bedroom. As well as that, she very much wanted to be the submissive in a slave master scenario, with her profile at the time reading, quote, my fetish is bondage. I love being in chains. I'm here to learn. I serve my master. My ideal master is someone who can train me to be the best submissive slave I can be. Honest, loyal, frank, and trustworthy, and possibly caring as well as strict. I'm also looking for someone who wants a 24-7 slave. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Unfortunately for Elaine, though, none of the men she met online over the next few years could satisfy her desires in the same way as her first boyfriend had. That was why, when he got back in touch with her sometime in March of 2011, she decided to resume a relationship with him once more. But while that turn of events made her happier than she'd been in a long time, pretty soon depression would strike again when, after discovering she was pregnant with what is assumed to be Graham's child in July of the same year, she had a miscarriage about four or five weeks later, robbing her of the chance to be a mother. That depression would only make her more susceptible to doing the increasingly extreme things her secret lover wanted to do as she was looking for anything that would make her feel a strong pleasure emotion again. That extreme was uncovered when, in one text message he sent to her around that time, he revealed that he no longer wanted to simply cut her with a knife anymore. No, he wanted to outright stab, sexually assault, and, the way she read the situation, possibly even role-play killing her. As the text stated, quote, I want to stick my knife in flesh while I'm sexually aroused. I would like to stab a girl to death sometime. My urge to rape, stab, or kill is huge. You have to help me control or satisfy it. Or at least Elaine had assumed the latter request was a form of roleplay because there was no way Graham would want to kill her for real as far as she was concerned. But that wouldn't be the case as it turned out. Ever since getting back in touch with her, he'd been laying the groundwork and making plans for something he'd been fantasizing about for a while. It turned out that Graham had a terrible few years prior to those plans. With the previously mentioned financial crisis gutting both him and his family, he was constantly stressed out over the prospect of paying back the mountains of debt he'd accrued. That meant there was nothing left for the luxuries he'd once enjoyed so much. Basically, he'd started to feel like he was unimportant, a non-entity if you will, and that was something he was unaccustomed to as prior to that he'd always seen himself as a man of some importance. But now that that sheen of importance had been taken away, his anger began to grow. That anger would be directed at women in general, as in his mind, he saw them as little more than submissive objects that deserved to be hurt for his pleasure. Now, it should be mentioned that this isn't the feeling shared by the vast majority of those in the BDSM community, and that the sub-dom arrangement is generally one of roleplay and nothing else. But given the nature of the fantasies such a community caters to, it means occasionally people like Graham Dwyer can be drawn into it. People who aren't merely acting out a roleplay, but who are instead creating a world for themselves which they believe to be the natural order of things. That is one where women are less than men, and so should serve them at all times. And if part of that service means being physically harmed in order to make the man feel better about himself and give him his mojo back, then so be it. So when Graham ordered a buck hunting special 119 knife online, he had no second thoughts and no regrets about what he planned to do with it, and that was to kill Elaine O'Hara. Before he could do that, though, he had to first get her out of the hospital. That's right, after taking another dip in her mental health following her miscarriage, Elaine had admitted herself to St. Edmundsbury. In July of 2012, she called the Samaritans to say she was depressed and contemplating ending it all. Obviously, that statement was taken very seriously and she was brought in immediately, with the young woman spending the next four weeks there while doctors and nurses kept a close eye on her. At least as far as they could see, she had improved during her stay there. As Stuart Cahoon, the man who had taken over as her therapist following the death of Dr. Claire put it when he saw her a month after her admission, quote, 
She was in cheerful form, spontaneous, smiling, alert, and seemed happy, really. She was excited about working with the tall ships. I thought most of 2012 was good, actually, but her mood was probably a bit better than that, even, on that day. On top of that, the doctor charged with caring for her in the hospital would state that by the time of her discharge, she was talking in different terms about life than she had when she had come in, with her now looking forward to engaging in new things that she felt would be healthier for her and ridding herself of the unhealthy parts of her existence. One of the things she appeared to be considering ridding herself of at that point was Graham Dwyer. According to a nurse who spoke to her the night before she was let out, they had discussed the man and how he had become a negative influence and possible danger to her both emotionally and physically. As that nurse would put it, quote, She said she was just pissed off. I sat on the bed to see if she wanted to talk to me. That's when she started telling me about this person she had met, so I told her to go to the police. But she wouldn't do that in the end because, before she would get a chance to, Olayne O'Hara's life would be snuffed out by the very man she was now beginning to fear. On August 22, 2012, after having attempted to brush off the further advances of Graham during a text conversation, Elaine prepared herself to go to the Tall Ship Festival the following day, a charity event where she had agreed to do some work upon being discharged. For as much as she had hoped that would be a happy event and that her increasingly threatening lover wouldn't try to get involved, he refused to take no for an answer. He was even still talking about killing her in their correspondence with one another, something she'd originally seen as a game but now was beginning to have doubts over. In one of those messages, he even stated, quote, That's good for you to feel owned and that your life is in my hands every time you submit to me. I love that. Thank you. Do not fear death. And when she'd responded by asking him to not talk about killing her for a while as it was starting to freak her out, he'd replied, quote, But tonight's punishment will be like me pretending to do someone for real, okay? Feeling powerless to say no on account of both the power dynamic between them and her fears that he might actually hurt her if she continued to refuse, Elaine agreed to head over to Shangana Cemetery at 5.30pm as per his instructions. Once she got there, she received further instructions via text message, with them telling her to cross the nearby railway bridge and walk down to the shore. After that, no further text messages were received and nothing more would be seen of Elaine while she was still alive. But no one knew anything bad had happened to her at the time. It wasn't until the next morning when someone began to suspect something was wrong. That was when her father, Frank, received word that she hadn't showed up to her shift at the Tall Ship Festival. So, concerned about that, Frank called around to anyone who he thought might be with his daughter or might have seen her recently. And when none of those people had any information to give him, he let himself into her apartment using a key she'd given him for emergencies on the off chance she'd slept in. Of course, she hadn't slept in and she wasn't at home, with that only increasing Frank's worries but he tried not to let things get to him quite yet. After all, there was probably a pretty simple explanation as far as he was concerned. That attitude would change the following day when, upon visiting her flat again and finding that not only was she still not there, but that her handbag was sitting in the living room with her money and credit cards inside, he started to realize something was indeed wrong. That was why, in a last gasp attempt at locating Elaine, he decided to head over the grave of his wife and her mother, a place they frequently visited together and, as it happened, a place that was located inside the same graveyard Graham had sent her two days prior. 
So it should come as no surprise that upon arriving at the graveyard, he spotted his daughter's car. And once he went over to investigate it, he was horrified to find a Nokia phone charger inside. Why was that horrifying to him? Well, because Elaine didn't own a Nokia phone as far as he knew. No, she owned an iPhone. So that meant someone else appeared to have been with her around the time she'd gone missing. It was definitely looking likelier and likelier to Frank that Elaine had been kidnapped and that was why he called the police at that point. Obviously, the police were quick to take action by attempting to trace Elaine's movements from when she had last been seen on the 22nd. The way they did that was to scour CCTV footage from the apartment building she lived in, something that showed her leaving home at 5.05pm that evening. That immediately caught her father's attention as she'd spoken to him earlier that day and told him she was going to be staying home for the evening. Why had she lied to her father and who was she going to meet in secret? That wouldn't become known quite yet, but what would become known was that she evidently had a secret phone as the CCTV footage showed her with the Nokia in hand. The same Nokia she'd been using as a burner specifically for contacting her lover. Not that the police understood the reason for her having the second phone at the time, though. As far as they were concerned, such a discovery only made the mystery of what had happened to her that much more confusing. So, in an attempt to get more information, they headed over to the Shangana Cemetery where they hoped to find some more evidence of where Elaine had gone, either by searching her car or by searching the grounds. Perhaps, as they suspected now, she'd gone there to visit her mother's grave and, in doing so, she'd undergone some kind of psychotic break which had led to her hurting herself. It was a theory that was certainly backed up by the fact a person who was later questioned when police were handing out missing persons photos around the area recalled seeing a woman who fit her description crying loudly at a gravesite that evening. And they weren't the only person who'd seen Elaine then either. No, another witness would also recall her approaching him and asking if he knew where the footbridge crossing the railway was. Then, after he gave her the information, she walked off in the direction of the beach, all while looking what he described as distraught. Now fearing she may have walked into the water and brought her own life to an end, police raced to the beach in question. But despite scouring the area, they didn't find any evidence of her having been there. And to make matters worse, they had no further leads to follow up on. That meant the case went cold all the way up until just over a year later on September 11th, 2013 when, in a moment that seemed to confirm everyone's worst fears, Elaine's clothes were discovered floating in a reservoir in County Wicklow. It had been three men who had found them when they were walking in the area that morning. At first they weren't sure what it was they'd seen in the water, but when they fished the bag out and opened it up to reveal a woman's vest top, a hoodie, a leather face mask, leg restraints, and handcuffs, they handed the items over to the police as they realized something sinister may have happened. Needless to say, once they received those items, the police went back over to the reservoir and conducted a search of their own where they uncovered additional items such as two Nokia phones, a set of house and car keys, sex toys, and SIM cards. When they traced the purchase of the SIM cards back to a local Dunn's grocery store, they were able to determine that they had indeed been bought by Elaine. If those were her possessions, it still didn't explain where the woman herself was. No, that piece of information wouldn't be revealed until two days later when skeletal remains were found by a woman while she was walking her dog. The remains were later identified through dental records as Elaine O'Hara. 
Obviously, now it looked like the authorities had a murder case on their hands, and that was why they began investigating it as such, with their first course of action being to check the two Nokia phones which, miraculously, were still in working order. On the phones, they found a treasure trove of information. Information that showed her relationship with Graham Dwyer through a series of texts, including the texts in which he proclaimed his desire to stab a girl to death, more specifically her. But that wasn't the only evidence they'd been able to unearth which suggested Elaine had been involved in an unhealthy relationship with the Bandon-born architect as, while searching her home in Blackrock, they looked at her computer and discovered documents referring to the Gorian lifestyle, a woman's right as slave. An extreme manifesto which includes passages such as, quote, If you're a woman practicing a Gorian lifestyle, you don't have one. Your identity is Kajira, a slave. And, quote, there are different types of women slaves. Some slaves purely serve as sexual objects, while others are masterful at cooking. Gorian women retain the right to refuse slavery. If a master wants to enslave a woman and she refuses, however, she may be killed. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, this document based on a banned book series was certainly fringe even by the standards of most within the BDSM community as it involved indulging in fetishes over murder. And that wasn't the only concerning thing found in Elaine's computer either, as there were also pornographic photos of what appeared to be mutilated bodies on her hard drive. On top of that, books entitled Serial Violence, Analysis of Modus Operandi, and Signature Characteristics of Killers, and 21 Techniques of Silent Killing were unearthed as well, suggesting that either she had an interest in those things, or the man at this point only identified as master through her texts was trying to push such interests upon her. Clearly then, the next step in the investigation was to locate the as-yet-unidentified master and bring him in for questioning. Luckily, that didn't take long to do because after accessing Elaine's alt.com profile and finding the profile of her master, Architect72, police were able to use a combination of the information both there and in the text between the pair to determine that this man was a 42-year-old married father of three named Graham Dwyer who worked as an architect and was based in Dublin. Of course, when Graham was first approached by investigators not long after that, though, he initially denied ever having met Elaine. But when evidence was shown to him that proved he was lying, including CCTV footage of him entering her building in the past, he changed his story and admitted that he had been involved with the deceased young woman, but that it had purely been sexual and he had nothing to do with her death. Sure, some of the messages between them suggested he had violent desires that he may have taken out on Elaine, but as he explained it at the time, they were just fantasies and nothing more, certainly not anything he would have done in real life. Once his personal computer was searched and violent sex tapes involving him and Elaine were discovered on his hard drive, the authorities felt they had enough evidence to formally charge him with murder. The only question left then was what would happen when the time eventually came for his trial. Would he go to prison for killing his lover, or would he be able to convince a jury he had nothing to do with it? 
As far as the defense team saw it, it was clear to them that Elaine had caused her own demise. After all, in the days prior to her death, she'd been in the hospital after struggling with those very thoughts. And while she'd been given the all-clear upon being discharged, it was impossible to say what was really going on in her mind at that point. Of course, the prosecution disagreed with that theory. The way they argued things, Graham Dwyer was a cold-hearted killer who had planned his lover's death well ahead of time and had ultimately carried it out with glee once the day came. He was almost the perfect murder, in fact. It involved him creating such a complex web of lies and secrets to hide his double life from his family, he was able to engage in his dark desires without anyone around him being the wiser. Sure, the things he spoke about in his texts to Elaine may have started out as mere sexual fantasies, but over time the content of their conversations clearly showed that his fantasies had morphed into an actual desire to kill. And given Elaine was in a pretty vulnerable state emotionally, she became the perfect prey for him to circle around as he waited for the right moment with which to finally strike. If nothing else, the gradual escalation of what he was asking her to do in the bedroom was textbook manipulative behavior, they would argue, and the calling card of a man who was only too happy to take full advantage of someone he felt he could have full control over at all times. And as if that wasn't enough, in at least one of the unearthed texts from her phone, it was shown that Elaine had tried to push back on some of his more extreme demands, showing that he was clearly uncomfortable with parts of their relationship and that he pushed along with them anyway, immediately making the whole thing that much less consensual and that much more a case of coercion. Obviously then, this created a pretty damning picture of Graham for the jury. And it was about to get even worse as, at that point in the trial, the videos that had been recovered from his computer, the same videos that had been bad enough for police to first feel comfortable charging him with murder, were shown. Of the 38 clips that were deemed to be possibly relevant to the case, 35 of them showed footage of him with Elaine in a variety of violent scenarios. One of them even showed him stabbing her in an act of sex play, with that being made all the worse by the fact her voice could clearly be heard saying, please stop. Then there were the videos that didn't include Elaine, the ones that showed Graham with other women who were also being cut with a knife, suggesting that it was something he did regularly. Those were arguably even more damning to the case as they showed him appearing to have filmed the women without their consent and in one of them, a blindfolded and gagged woman can very clearly be seen trying to scream as he plunges a knife into her. For as bad as that looked, and for as bad as it looked when one of Graham's ex-girlfriends took the stand and claimed he regularly kept a kitchen knife under his pillow whenever they were having sex, that still didn't prove he was actually responsible for Elaine's death. No, in order to convince the jury he'd actually done that, they had to paint a clearer picture of what occurred on that day. Luckily, further text messages recovered from Elaine's phone would do just that as they showed him contacting her on the afternoon she left the hospital. And while after that the trail went dark in terms of smoking gun evidence, it was felt that that, combined with the rest of the evidence, was enough to prove that Graham wanted to get his victim out to a remote location where he could force her into his car, kill her, and drive up to the Kiliki Mountains in order to dump her body. But even if that looked to be the final nail in the coffin for Graham's defense, his team continued to argue that none of the evidence actually proved he killed anyone and all it really showed was that he was someone who had sexual interests which were considered outside of the norm by most. 
Sure, he had been the last known person to speak to Elaine based on those text messages, but could it really be proven beyond a doubt he was the one who'd sent them? One of Graham's lawyers argued that phone data shouldn't even have been admissible at trial at all, as it was a breach of his rights under the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. On top of that, there was still the lingering issue of the victim's mental health issues and how that could have easily led to her going out to the water to remove herself from the world. As they would point out, classifying the case as a murder was something that could be debated as the cause of death had never been determined by coroners and no stab marks had been found on her bones. Of course, the prosecution were ready to counter that by stating that, while a cause of death had never been officially ruled, there was still overwhelming evidence to suggest it had been a murder. And there was also overwhelming evidence to suggest Graham was the one using the phone that had been corresponding with Elaine during her final days over and above the call data which had been gathered. As Sean Guerin, senior counsel for the state, said at the time when discussing the issue, quote, the appellate is overstating significantly the use of the call data. There were multiple routes towards determining who was using the phone. One was call data. At the same time, there was an old-fashioned detective job in Black Rock Garda Station, which involved reading the text messages and identifying personal information which would point towards the identity of the suspect. One of the ways it was argued this old-fashioned detective work had proven beyond a doubt Graham was the man on the other end of the phone was a message sent from him to Elaine on April 4, 2011, a message in which he told her he was at a committee meeting at the Shankill Flying Club. A separate witness who was also in attendance at the meeting for radio-controlled model plane enthusiasts would confirm that Graham was indeed there on the day in question. If that wasn't enough... Another text in which the defendant complained about having to pay almost 4,000 euros to fix his car lined up with documents which proved Graham had indeed spent that amount on car repairs around the same time. Then there were further texts that showed him talking about buying a new bike, entering a model plane flying competition, getting a wage reduction, and attending a reception at the Polish embassy, all of which were corroborated with solid evidence that proved that he had done those things during the time period as those texts were sent. So obviously, when all that was taken together, it seemed to confirm that the accused was indeed the man on the other end of the phone and the prosecution wasn't done discrediting the defense's arguments quite yet, because with regards to the questions over Elaine's mental state and whether or not she could have been ready to end it all upon leaving the hospital, they pointed towards numerous witnesses, such as a pharmacist and her manager at work, both of whom knew her well and who stated on record that they'd spoken to her on the day of her death. As far as those people argued, there were no concerns to be had about Elaine being a danger to herself at that point as there were none of the signs they would have been familiar with that would have suggested she wanted to die. If anything, she seemed happy all things considered and was excited about going to work at the tall ships. With that avenue not looking like it was going to lead to any positive results for the defense, they moved on to other areas which they thought might be enough to secure them the result they wanted such as the fact that the videos shown at the trial were grounds for a mistrial as they unfairly led the jury in one direction. The way Graham's senior counsel Michael Bowman argued at the time, the purpose of the prosecution showing videos wasn't to prove he had fantasies of killing anyone. No, it was to introduce, quote, something toxic into the forensic process of the criminal trial which they hoped would overwhelm the ability of the jury to remain impartial. And when that didn't appear to convince anyone, Bowman then moved on to argue that the judge tasked with overseeing the trial, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, 
could not be treated as an impartial arbitrator, as at one point when particularly damning evidence was being heard, he'd looked in a very disapproving manner at the defendant. He even claimed that that look unfairly biased the jury as they'd seen it happen. That said, the complaint would be shot down as being nebulous, as there was no way of knowing whether or not the jury took anything from such a look, or if they did indeed even see it. And when it came to the claim that the glare had proven the judge wasn't impartial, that was simply laughed off as being ridiculous. There was simply no getting around it for Graham. His trial was going to continue and, based on the evidence presented, it didn't look like it was going to end well for him. And that wasn't even taking into account the final killing blow the prosecution were about to deliver when they brought a psychology expert in and had them explain that, in their opinion, the timing and setting of the murder told them the defendant had planned it in such a way that he hoped he would get away with it by making it look like a self-inflicted act. As if that wasn't enough, if he was left to go free, then it was very likely he was going to kill again as his dark desires appeared to be an ongoing compulsion. In fact, based on information gathered from his computer, he may have already been in the process of doing just that when he was arrested, as he'd already begun communicating back and forth in a sexual manner with a woman from Maine he met online known as Darcy Day. Like Elaine, Darcy fit the profile of someone who could easily be manipulated by Graham as she was known to harbor negative thoughts about herself and had even gone as far as to inflict harm upon her own body as a teenager. So it should come as no surprise to anyone that, on March 27, 2015, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict. After that, it didn't take long for Mr. Justice Tony Hunt to deliver a sentence of life in prison. While the result couldn't bring Elaine back, they were at least happy that justice had been served. That said, they would remain haunted by what they'd heard during the trial for the rest of their days. As a statement that was read by their legal team after the trial stated, quote, It was heartbreaking for us to listen to the texts Elaine received from a depraved and diseased mind. The manipulation of her vulnerability was apparent and when she tried to resist, she was reined back in. We could hear her voice in those texts just wanting to be loved. Hearing the contents of the videos will haunt us forever. This is our life sentence. For us, there is no parole. Of course, when it came to Graham Dwyer, he would appeal the court's decision on the basis that his team still believed using mobile phone data as part of the case was incompatible with EU law. But while that would eventually lead to a larger discussion about the usage of such data in trials going forward, in this particular incidence, the Irish Supreme Court ultimately agreed that an exception was merited here as said data so clearly pointed towards the guilt of the defendant. And just like that, the tragic story of Elaine O'Hara's murder came to an end with her killer well and truly behind bars and unlikely to see the light of day for a long, long time. But that's not to say it's not something her family and friends still continue to struggle with to this day as, in the annals of brutal killings seen throughout Irish history, this one has to rank right there amongst the worst for the sheer levels of cruelty, dehumanization, and brutality that it involved. Something only capable at the hands of a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help.
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.